Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Today's episode looks at consciousness and the human brain, examining first the personal, what it's like to be neurodivergent, to live on the autism spectrum, and then the neuroscience of our interrelations, what and how we know about how the brain works and adapts. Up first, we welcome autism activist, journalist, and author Sarah Kerchak to the podcast. Her book, I Overcame My Autism and All I Got Was This Lousy Anxiety Disorder, examines the Byzantine steps she took to become an autistic success story and how that process almost ruined her life. She spoke with Nina Jane Drysdeck, a communications consultant and an acclaimed poet. I'm not a big fan of simple, straightforward mental health narratives. I'm thrilled for anyone whose recovery has been relatively linear, and I get why they want to share their stories. It's admirable that people who have made it through some shit want to decrease stigma and give hope to anyone who is still in it. But anytime I see a public figure or personal acquaintance contribute to an awareness campaign with some variation of I had anxiety slash depression, but I reached out to friends slash called a helpline slash saw a medical professional, I went on medication slash got therapy slash talked through it with supportive loved ones, and I'm okay now, I feel equally envious and mystified. You mean to tell me that you had a problem? Identified the problem. Asked for help. Got it. Treated your problem. And got better? What is this witchcraft? When my assessor confirmed that I was autistic, my immediate thought was, now that we know, we can fix it. When my therapist explained that he didn't believe in fixing autism and started laying out what we could focus on in our sessions instead, I thought, even better. I'll therapy and healthy coping mechanism my heart out and medicate if necessary and still be me but without all of the depression and anxiety. It turns out there is no clear path between A and B when A equals 27 years of confusion, overloaded senses, trauma, and maladjustments recently uncovered as the result of a crisis. In the introduction to your book, you sort of talked about how, you know, you got pitched to do this book and you were talking about like the different books that you could write. Uh, One was the like the, the failed autistic romance. Uh, or teen sex comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, the other was a novella about Plato and Socrates, professional writing, right, wrestling, and homoerotic fan fiction. Um, but then you sort of just pulled out what is the title of your book. I overcame my autism and all I got was this lousy anxiety disorder. And I was wondering, like, is that like the title came to you whole? Where, how did that like percolate? It was just like living in my head for years that I said, like, if I ever wrote a memoir or any fiction, um, it would absolutely be called I Overcame My Autism and All I Got Was This Lousy Anxiety Disorder. Um, I grew up near Niagara Falls and I grew up loving Niagara Falls for like none of the classy or natural reasons, but for the trash. Um, So I spent a lot of time in gift shops. And I spent most of that time thinking like t-shirts that said, you know, I overcame, my, my grandmother went to Niagara Falls and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. It was the funniest <laughs> thing ever. Um, and so it just became like this running joke in any form of my life. I'd do something and all I got was this lousy blank. Um, I actually uh, had my luggage stolen from McCarran Airport 
when I was going to one of my many Las Vegas trips with my mother and wrote a blog because like they actually did give me a t-shirt as part of my compensation package. So it was, you know, I lost my luggage and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. And so it just, as it became apparent that if I, you know, ironically quote, overcame my autism and all I did was like fall apart more. um, It just became this natural thing I started saying. So um, when I finally was asked to write something, you know, nonfiction that wasn't, the novella I wrote when I was 21 about pro wrestling and Plato and Socrates. Um, it was, I overcame my autism and all I got was this lousy anxiety disorder. Yeah. And then, and then you kind of like, you wrote the book sort of to that title. You involve all those, all like the steps that you, that you took quote unquote, uh, steps that should not be followed as you say. And most likely lots of them can't be followed because it's just like, so unique, like, Pillow fight, pillow fight wrestling or pillow fight club, wrestling club. Uh, yeah, working for yeah. music, music journalism is not really as a thing. Yeah, you know, the magazines aren't real anymore. There will probably never be another pillow fight league. So yeah, things that helped me that maybe other people shouldn't do are, are not even options anymore. Um, but I'm Did sure you... there's all sorts of other weird and fascinating ways that you can like make mistakes and ruin your life but also maybe help it in some ways or did you always see those as mistakes that ruined your life or like when you're writing this book how did that come together no I have I have have a pretty solid through narrative on my life from the beginning it's the one major puzzle piece that was missing was that I always thought like I was wrong or terrible and then it turned out I was just autistic um which might have been helpful to know earlier on in life um I I really I loved working for the magazine. I mostly loved being a pillow fighter. Um, the reasons I didn't were all internal drama um, that are probably another book and not worth getting into on a podcast. Um, but you know, the whole time I was doing them, I was aware that a lot of people around me, not necessarily my core, because uh, I mean, the book is all about how supportive my parents are, but you know, a lot of like more distant relatives and friends who maybe didn't entirely get me going, yeah, you're so smart. Why are you a pillow fighter? Or, you know, you're so smart. You could have been a lawyer. Why are you writing about music for no money? Um, so they did seem like really bad mistakes from the outside. And then every time I did something that made those same people think I was doing something right or that I thought would make them think, was like a responsible real world decision. Those are the things that ended up ruining my life. Yeah, totally. And you, you talk about that a lot. Well, you talk about that at length in the book. Um, and I think like, as you talk in your passage that you read, I think it's from that section, like you found out you're autistic later in life, like in your late twenties. Um, and find like even coming to that and the resources that are available to adults in terms of you know, who may not know they're autistic are uh, somewhat lacking and the research isn't there either. Um, yeah. Can you talk about why that's important to talk about for you? Well, there are so many different ways I fell through the cracks and I feel a lot of them sort of cascaded and built upon each other. There's a real snowball effect there um, because no one recognized what autism looked like in a girl when I was growing up in the late 80s and early 90s in the Niagara region, um, no one ever thought to say, hey, maybe you're autistic or get me tested or put me into like any sort of 
program that might help me or give me any resources that might help along the way. So I coasted along doing the best I could, which wasn't terrible. I have been fairly lucky in life in a number of ways, but I was just missing a fundamental piece of information about myself, making mistakes not knowing that, and leading to a life where not only did I not know that about myself, but growing up not knowing it had given me no resources to figure out that I had it. Um, once you're over 18, there's just not a lot in Ontario that you can do to find out you're autistic, especially if you don't have money. And if you're an undiagnosed autistic, unless you're like a, a super genius who gets everything, just stumbles through the right things in life, um, you're not going to have the money to pay that for yourself. You are also probably not going to be at a place in life where you have the executive function to follow through on the steps to find out where they're doing assessments, to book an appointment, and then to pay for it and figure out what the next steps are. So I just sort of, you know, I think I was in my early 20s when I realized that I was checking off all of the boxes for what was then called Asperger's syndrome or, you know, quote unquote, high functioning autism. I'm not a fan of functioning labels myself, but that's what it was called at the time that I, what I knew of as autism. Um, and figured, you know, I would really like to know this about myself. It seems kind of fundamental, but I had no money. And so I was like, okay, this is going to be a fantasy now. I'm just going to wonder for the rest of my life if this fundamental piece of myself is true or not. Um, until, because I was not diagnosed and didn't know how to like really deal with any of the issues that I'd been barely coping with for my entire life, kind of got out of control. And I had a real crisis situation when I was 27 and luckily pieced together just enough money to start the diagnosis process. Um, and yeah, I'm really lucky that happened. Uh, it's an amount of money that was huge to us, but much cheaper than most autism assessments are now. So there are a number of people, including like if I were 27 right now, who couldn't even get the level of service that I did, which is absolutely devastating because just because we've made it this far doesn't mean we're going to coast forever. Most people I know who are diagnosed as adults were diagnosed as the result of major crises in life. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of focus on autism in children nowadays, mm -hmm. and most organizations are centered around that, but we there isn't as much conversation as autism in adults. And obviously your book is filling, filling some of that gap. But do you see that happening in other places as well? I'm seeing that the current autistic adults are getting a little more vocal and just trying to be a, a part of the conversation, which unfortunately is often seen as us trying to take over the conversation just by trying to be involved at all. Um, there is because people know so little about autism, it's assumed that the second that you can talk about your own autism, you must clearly be fine enough and you don't really need the limited resources that are available. And I don't want to steal resources from anyone who needs one-on-one -on -one support or who needs communication assistance or anything like that. But at the same time, even those of us who perhaps do have certain advantages in life in terms of being verbal or, you know, being able to mask, um, we do have our own problems. Um, we're a 
approximately nine times more likely to commit suicide than the general population. And that's like a devastating statistic that I desperately don't want to become a part of and don't want any of the autistic adults I'm talking to to become a part of. And I think things have gotten a little better from when I was first diagnosed as an autistic adult myself, but not nearly enough to start seeing changes in the statistics that are scaring the crap out of me. That term you talked about, we don't really like high-functioning autism, (laughs) Um, or just like what looks like you may not have autism, that idea of masking and being able to present like that vision. And that's sort of also what you wrestle with a lot is like, Mm -hmm. how do you perform? How do you mask? We miss the idea of masking entirely as like a society. Well, I think masking is, it's a survival instinct. Um, that is mostly done by people who are marginalized in more than one way. Um, If, you know, obviously cis had white boys struggle with autism too, um, but people know what it looks like in them. And the heartwarming stories as well as the tragedies are about them. And also, generally, white boys get away with more in life than anyone else does, which means there's just less of an imperative for them to need to cover anything about themselves. Um, Even, you know, as a white girl in a very, very white Niagara region growing up, there were still parts of myself that even though I didn't realize maybe what was wrong and couldn't follow conversations or subtle cues about what I was doing wrong, I knew something was, and I knew I had to like fix it and protect myself um, to avoid more bullying and more trauma. Um, And so I, I think that kind of like folds in on itself. People who don't look like the obvious presentation of autism just to stay alive have to look even less autistic which you know makes us harder to detect and then when we are when we do figure it out if we do it's much harder to pick apart you know what is actually ourselves and what was a survival instinct that was keeping us alive and killing us at the same time maybe when people are learning about autism, they can also learn that autistic individuals, because we're human beings, should maybe be allowed to protect themselves as much as non-autistic people are without being made to feel like they are either lying about their autism or not doing enough to help others. Um, I don't really know if I actually affected that balance. There are days where I'm wondering if during the editorial process I misread notes and like was maybe not being pushed to reveal as much as I thought I was um, <laughs> and just disclosed a bunch of shit I probably shouldn't have. Um, <laughs> so far, no one seems to have any problems with it. You're critical about some things in this book as well. It's not like this is what's like the best part of the movement or like there's some things we need to work on. And two things that I thought um, 
you talk about um, power of empathy or like what empathy is to the autistic community. So empathy has become quite a loaded concept um, in autistic circles and understandably so because the original assumption about autistic people was that we didn't have empathy or that we didn't have theory of mind so that we could never possibly understand what was going on in another person's mind and that we can never possibly relate to it or care which is a really really broad statement and I don't even think fair for people who experience autism differently. A lot of autistic people be, who are you know allowed to think good things about themselves as human beings and who are also in general probably processing a lot of trauma and trying to reframe their lives as something other than this miserable tragedy that they've been told it is kind of ran to the other side of the boat and went with it's a lie that autistic people don't have empathy. In fact, we have too much empathy. We're great at it, which ended up alienating a lot of autistic people who don't experience empathy in a typical way or even an overabundant way. Um, and then I felt like I fit somewhere into the middle of that. Um, and then maybe that is an area where my story could offer some benefit to more people is because I, I really do understand what other like hyper empath autistic people are talking about when they say that they feel too much because I do get overwhelmed. Like it'll be, I don't know if I mentioned in this book, but like I went to a funeral about 16, 17 years ago and there's one gesture that happened at it that the second I think about it, I will start crying and it just overwhelms me. Um, but the thing is, I do shut down. It's too much for me. And I don't like the idea that empathy in of itself is seen as this pure heartedness when in fact, I think it actually gets in the way of me being able to engage with other people and help in that moment. And that a number of the autistic people who don't process it the way I do and don't overwhelmingly feel it but still believe in a sense of rightness and helping people are actually way more effective. And I just don't want them to be left in the dust by any new narrative that talks about the different ways in which autistic people can feel, you know, too little or too much or whatever. I think the point is that we process it differently. Um, and that there's a, a lot of middle ground, whether that's good or bad. It's just something we, you know, we're human is the point to acknowledge more than like we're perfect humans. Um, and there are a number of different ways to give a shit and to follow through on that or to not follow through on that. <laughs> um, and then in terms of finding your community, I think it's incredibly valid. I just also think that's another area where our narratives have been maybe a bit too glossed over um, because at the end of the day, I still believe it is a disability. It is a disorder to me. I know not everyone who is autistic agrees with that, but I you know, believe in the social model to an extent. Um, I definitely do believe that in the bubble I have currently created for myself in terms of work and friends and family, 
my autism is less harmful to me and less noticeable to other people than it would be if I had a different life. Uh, but it's still an issue. And so I think it's absolutely wonderful and vital for people to find other people who accept them and love them. And I think it can change people's lives, but I don't want to push any narrative where that's the end of the story because it's more like it makes your life livable and manageable enough that you can actually start to take care of the other stuff. And you talk, you talk a lot about going through therapy in the book and how that helps you sort of acknowledge some of those things. You talk about like learning to forgive yourself um, as part of it. Um, but then also that still remains like a challenge. I think about that part um, with your mother in Las Vegas where you have, you sort of break down in the bathroom and your mother leaves. And then afterwards she comes back, she says, it's okay. Her husband says, it's okay. Mm-hmm. But for you, it's still not okay. Like how, yeah. even knowing that you've, you know, you've worked on these tools or tricks to work through that. How, like, how do you manage with that sense that sometimes it's still not okay? I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> I have no good answers there because, um, and that's one of those where I think it's really just a combination of nature and nurture. I think I was just sort of born a neurotic perfectionist. I think that was always going to be a part of my makeup, no matter what else happened. But I also think that like, there were so many situations in my childhood where my imperfection was turned into even like not even a mean spirited joke sometimes. Just it was funny that a kid made a mistake and I just thought it meant that I was the worst person ever. Um, and then also, you know, when kids didn't like me in school, mm-hmm. if I made a mistake, that was something they knew would hurt me. So they'd prey on it. Um, So I really don't think at this point I'm ever really going to reach a place where I'm not just going to be miserably hard on myself and be like my own worst stage mom for the rest (laughs) of my life. Um, And it's, I mean, that's kind of tragic and sad, but I'm kind of just hoping that admitting this and sharing this as part of my story can prevent the next generation of Sarahs from being (laughs) quite so terrible to themselves. I am far from the only autistic adult who will, you know, just sing the praises of getting really into your special interests for all sorts of reasons. Um, There's a lot of current treatments for autistic children. Try to guide them away from that. And there is the idea that you want to get them away from their hyperfixation and into the world. Or the secondary idea is that you teach them how to exploit it for work, um, which I have complicated feelings about. I have turned most of my special interests into work over the years. Um, It's also destroyed a few of them for me and actually made me like lose that one little sense of protective bubble I had against a terrible world. It just became part of the terrible for me. Um, But then there have been really rewarding experiences too. Um, I know some autistic people don't like to pathologize the idea of a special interest, but for me specifically, I can see the pattern. I know that the second 
that I go beyond like a casual interest in something to where it just like starts to be compelling on another level, it's usually a sign that something else is going wrong in my life and that I need some sort of insulation from it and maybe a little bit of escape or maybe just a way to refocus my brain on something while something else isn't making sense or is like stressful. Um, and so even the simple act of just like going with the flow means that I am taking care of myself in a way and that I'm developing a little bit of self-awareness. And beyond that too, like the world is very small now thanks to the internet and no matter like what weird obscure shit you're into you're gonna fight your people if you're really into it you write articles and books and journalism you also worked for tiff and Re- tiff and reviewed films um would you ever make a film like do you have like a film script hidden under your mattress or in the back of a drawer somewhere or is it just books no i <laughs> just books <laughs> I mean, I actually really wanted to be a filmmaker in my teens and was like trying to get into the Canadian Film Center for a while there. But then like basically as a screenwriter that hoped to branch into it. Um, I'm not sure I have the brain for that kind of thing, but God, I would love to try. Um, I I really, I want to write the autistic teen sex comedy as a book, but then I want to write the screen adaptation too. (laughs) I think that would lend itself very well to film. Yeah, I think, I think that's like, I mean, I read that and I was like, I really hope that's the next book that comes from Sarah Kerchak. I'm going to (laughs) try. One thing I wanted to ask about was like your mom. I think she is such an important part of your book and your life. You text her all the time. Um, Mm. And it was, yeah, it was lovely just to read about your relationship. I was wondering, you know, what does, what does she think of your book? (laughs) Has she, did she read it yet? She did. And it's one of only two books she has read in adulthood. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. It's funny. Like my dad was the obvious one who got diagnosed after I was diagnosed. We looked at him and went like, well, yeah, that's autism. Um, And my mom's not autistic, but she's definitely got like sort of some auditory processing issues, maybe some attention deficit. Um, And a lot of that comes through in the fact that just book reading is not a medium that gets through to her very often. Um, But I am very honored to be one of two books she's read in adulthood. The other is Robert Bond's memoirs, which was my suggestion, which is like the greatest book written in our time. Um, It's just bonkers. I don't even know how to describe it. It's just like if a Nabokov, Nabokov character came to life and wrote his own memoirs, it would be Robert Bonds. Um, <laughs> but as for me, um, no, she's like always been supportive. She believed I would write a book long before I did and long after I gave up on the idea to, um, and yet has also been kind enough to only say I told you so a few times. <laughs> <laughs> there's got to be someone who does that though <laughs> yeah, well, someone's got to keep me honest and no one has earned it more than she has because she's you know always been the one who's like yeah you're not done yet there's still something coming you're going to write a book someday um so yeah I'm absolutely thrilled that she got to hold it in her hands at all and really thrilled that 
well, and she and dad both loved it and sent me very beautiful, very them messages about it. Um, and both messaged me knowing full well that I'd need a second to process it and cry before I could even talk to them about it. Um, so yeah. just, you know, beautiful all around and also very in keeping with our communication needs and communication styles. That's nice. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Sarah. Oh, it was thank really- you. That was Nina Jane Drysdeck in conversation with Sarah Kerchak about her book, I Overcame My Autism, and all I got was this lousy anxiety disorder. Up next, it's a conversation between Stephen Brockwell, an award-winning poet who moonlights in IT, and best-selling author and neuroscientist, David Eagleman. I'm here with David Eagleman, uh, the writer of uh, Live Wired, and we're going to be talking about brain plasticity, or as he's replaced the term, this Live Wired term is a, is a kind of new way of looking at the adaptive nature of the brain and the body, uh, its interfaces and so on. And I'll also talk about, um, you know, some social issues that are implicated by it. It's a fascinating book, incredibly wide ranging. One thing that I found really interesting about your education um, is actually something dear to my heart. You actually started in English um, and then you kind of moved into neuroscience after that. And I thought that was interesting. So if you could just spend one minute on that journey, because I think there's also an event in your life that has somewhat motivated your, you know, kind of deep interest in, in neuroscience. Um, th- yeah, that's right. I, I was a British and American literature major as an undergraduate. That was my first love. And I also loved science. Um, and I was looking around for exactly where I would fit in science. I studied a lot of space physics. I studied a lot of engineering, but, um, but my major was in, uh, in literature. And then it was my last semester of my senior year, I discovered neuroscience. And that's when I knew I'd found what I was looking for. And there's an interesting relationship actually between literature and neuroscience in the sense that, um, you know, with science, we have a certain, it's a certain way of coming to understand the world. And we have um, particular <clears throat> ways of going about um, setting up the next experiment studying. And when it comes to literature, that's also a way of trying to understand the world. And, and um, it's just a different way of setting things up and trying things, but it's, it's in some sense the same goal. When I was in the third grade, I fell off of the roof of a house that was under construction. And um, the fall seemed to take a very long time, even though it was actually... 0.6 of a second to get from the top to the bottom. Um, I was thinking about all sorts of things and, uh, and that fascinated me. And when I got older and became a neuroscientist, that's one of the things that I've uh, devoted some fraction of my career to is understanding the perception of time so that apparently this childhood experience also navigated me towards neuroscience. And, and you know, that the, the whole scope of the brain and consciousness. I mean, there's so many areas to talk about. One of the things that um, I wouldn't mind just a brief overview for the listeners is maybe, you know, you lay out a handful of principles about the way to think about this. Like one is reflect the world, um, you know, how the brain has to reflect the world. And I, I love in the beginning of the book, when you're talking about how the brain adapts as you play, you know, how like babble is the way you learn speech by hearing yourself make sounds. Um, I wonder if you wouldn't mind laying out some of the, you know, key concepts for the listeners. 
Yeah. I mean, the general story is your brain is locked in silence and darkness in the vault of your skull. And so it's trying to make a, a model of the world. And all, all it has are these signals, these electrical signals that come running up the data cables into it. And it's trying to understand what's going on around that. And so what's happened in neuroscience traditionally is that we, you know, if you pick up a neuroscience textbook, you'll see a picture of the brain and, and everything is labeled. It says, oh, this is for vision. This is for hearing. This is for touch and so on. But as it turns out, and really this is what the book is about, it's an incredibly flexible system. It's, it's a fluid system that's totally changing itself to reflect the world, to match themselves, match itself to its input. And um, so just as an example, if somebody is born blind, this back part of the brain is not the visual system. It becomes other parts. It gets taken over by hearing and touch and so on. And one of the things that I illustrate is the, the way that this whole system is sprung tight like a mousetrap. It's competitive all the way down at the smallest levels so that if anything is not used, no real estate lies fallow. It gets taken over. Um, and then one of the other principles is that brains leverage whatever information is streaming in. So it wraps itself around the inputs. And what this means is that we can actually create new kinds of sensory devices. So one of the things I've done, I've spun off from my neuroscience laboratory, a company called Neosensory. And we, um, for example, for people who are deaf, we, we've built a wristband that captures sound and turns it into patterns of vibration on the skin. And deaf people can come to understand what is happening in the auditory world through patterns on their skin because the signals race up the, their arm and up their spinal cord into their brain and their brain can figure out what to do with it. Uh, it's essentially just like what the ear is doing, but we just transfer the ear to the skin. And um, so this illustrates the way that brains leverage whatever information streams in. Um, one other principle, there are actually several, but I'll just mention one more, which is brains learn to control whatever body they discover themselves inside of. So uh, one of the stories I tell is of this dog named Faith who, who was born without front legs and Faith can uh, walk on her back legs bipedally like a human. And it's, it's amazing to watch this. It's, it's, not that, um, it's not that Faith is the only dog that can do this. It's just she's presumably the only one who was motivated enough to do this. But, but what this illustrates is that dog brains don't come pre-programmed to drive dog bodies. Instead, they drive whatever body they find themselves in. So if the dog brain finds itself in a body with only rear legs, it says, okay, well, I'll figure out how to walk on my hind legs. So um, this happens all the time. I also tell the story of this guy, Matt Stutzman, who was born without arms, and he actually happens to be the world's best archer. He, yeah, he has the, the longest accurate shot. Um, and, and again, it's just because whatever body the brain is inside of, it says, okay, I'm going to figure out how, you know, what my options are here and how to drive this. Yeah, I thought there were some really interesting kind of uh, downstream ideas from that. Like one was that, um, you know, like the, the example you had about uh, hearing deafness through the skin. The other example, there's one other example you use where it's sort of like there's a digital bypass of some of the signals from, you know, the sort of nerves that are, you know, conducting the signal as well. And I, can, I think that's in earlier stages. But do you foresee like new medical devices becoming more mainstream? How far out do you think those are for 
like therapies for, for people that are, I mean, they're already here at some level, but you know, what about yeah. mobility and these kinds of things? It's actually been happening since at least the 1960s where people are putting electrodes into the brain where you can measure the activity of cells or drive the activity of cells. And this has had great therapeutic benefit. Uh, for example, with Parkinson's disease, somebody, let's say, has a tremor. If you put a deep electrode into this part of their brain that is degenerating in Parkinson's and you put activity in there, suddenly their tremors stop and they can walk again without freezing um, and so on. So uh, these, these um, techniques have been really valuable and with new companies, for example, Elon, Musk, uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink is a new company that has developed a better way of getting lots of electrodes in there. Um, these things are extremely useful therapeutically. I don't think it's going to become a mass consumer uh, product because it still requires an open head surgery. And Musk is sort of um, suggesting that maybe everyone's going to want to get this brain implant to interface faster with their cell phone or something. But the truth is that there's always risk of infection and death on the operating table and neurosurgeons aren't going to want to do this and nor I think are consumers going to want to do this. Um, so that said, it's terrifically useful uh, for various sorts of clinical. And I mean, I think one of the principles of the book, and I, I may sort of get it, you know, wrong in the nuance, but I think what is interesting about that too is that to a certain extent, tell me if I'm wrong here and help me understand, the if you get those um, electrodes into the brain, the brain to a certain extent will adapt to the feedback that it's getting and there's that interplay. They don't have to be perfectly wired into specific neurons or anything like that. It's like the, their presence there, the brain senses that and that sensation adapts over time as you learn what the signals mean. Is that a, is that a sort of true statement? Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. And this is one of the, this is, this is something that's so, uh, I would say unknown and unappreciated, but incredible is that as long as you get the data to the brain, it doesn't really matter how you get there. The brain will figure out what to do with it if it can find use from it. So just as an example, yeah, with the, with the wristband that we make, you know, it brings auditory information into the part of the brain that's normally involved in feeling signals from the body. And yet the brain says, oh, okay, I see. This is correlated with, you know, when the dog's mouth opens and I'm feeling vibrations on the skin, um, you know, oh, that must be the dog's bark. And it puts it all together and does that. There have been studies in, for example, you know, lab rats where um, some investigators at Duke put in an infrared detector into uh, the visual cortex, just, just plugged it right in there. And the rat could yeah. say, oh, okay, yeah, I, I can figure out that there are signals here in the infrared range, which I normally can't see. Um, and I'm going to just figure out quickly how to use those. Yeah, I, for, when I was a kid, I always wanted to invent a new color, <laughs> funny enough, because and you talk about that, right? Like yeah. why we kind of can't do that until we have it before us. You so the suggestion I make is that we cannot imagine a new color, which is very interesting, right? I mean, just sit and try for a moment to imagine it. And the idea is that there's a real fence line around our internal subjective experience. It's, it's not that there aren't more colors that could be imagined because we now know that a very small fraction of females have not just three types of photoreceptors in their eyes, but four types, which means they can see 
lots of, they're experiencing lots of colors that we're not. So for example, you know, you can show this to a, uh, what's called a tetrochromatic female and say, you know, okay, is there any difference between these colors? And she'll say, yeah, those are, you know, that's this color and that's this color. But to you and me, it would look exactly the same. There's no difference between them. So um, it is possible to have different internal subjective experiences, but whatever you have, you just really can't imagine outside of that. So the reason I suggest this is, for example, with our, our wristband, you know, we're feeding in auditory information for deaf people, but that's just the beginning of it. We can actually feed in any kind of data stream. So, for example, we've done um, data from a drone that you're flying. You're flying a drone plane around a quadcopter, and you can feel the pitch, yaw, roll, orientation, and heading the quadcopter, and that information uh, is going to the brain, and you essentially can become one with your quadcopter and uh, feel, it's like you've stretched your skin up there. We've also done experiments with feeding stock market data or Twitter data or air pollution data or um, dozens of other <clears throat> projects that we have ongoing in our company. And so um, <clears throat> the question is when you, when you feel a new data, let's say, let's say you are feeling stock market and I'm feeling drone data, the question is, could I imagine what it is like for you if you do that for months and months and actually develop a new subjective experience of the stock market such that you feel it when the stock market's going down or up and you, it feels bad or good to you? And, and for me, I'm feeling drone data and it, I, I feel, oh, I, I better do this because my drone is, you know, banking or doing whatever. Um, the question is, can I imagine what your experience is like, or could you imagine what my experience is like? And probably not is the answer because it's like imagining a new color. You can't imagine what it feels like for me to, to be one with the drone, nor can I imagine what it's like for you to be one with the stock market. Well, and it seems like, you know, your brain shapes that experience too. So it, it, you, you, even when you get the device, you don't know exactly what to do with it you, you, at all. Like, in fact, you have to learn by doing Exactly. And by the way, this is the key. None of us remember this, of course, but when you were an infant, you had to learn how to use your eyes and your ears and your fingertips and so on. It, it wasn't magically just there and you said, oh, I'm seeing, I'm hearing, whatever. <laughs> Instead, what's happening is your young new brain is getting all these spikes coming in. Spikes are these little electrical signals coming in along these, these data cables, um, carrying information from the eyes and the ears and so on. And it's it's, not, it's just a cacophony of data coming in at first. And what your brain had to do is figure out, oh, okay, when I see my mother's mouth move and there's this sound thing, my eardrum at the same time, and I can sort of put that together. And of course, kids spend years, you know, clapping their hands and banging the car bars of the cave, the, the, the crib, uh, sorry, the crib and, and, you know, slapping their foreheads and you know, doing whatever. They're figuring out how to use their body, how all this stuff correlates, these signals. And, and that's how they develop an internal subjective experience. One of the things, I think I mentioned this in the book, one of the things that I think is interesting is when a newborn baby looks at you in the eye and we all feel this pleasure of, oh my gosh, he just looked at me in the eyes. But it may not be that that baby is seeing the way we think of vision, that, like the experience of vision. Instead, its brain is just trying to figure out what all these things are. I wonder too, you know, you talked about that in the, the example of the young fellow who had to have um, one hemisphere of his brain removed. And, um, you know, how, because he was done at a young enough age, his brain really was able to adapt and, you know, other parts of his other hemisphere took over. 
Um, he didn't lose complete, you know, uh, motion on one the other side of his body. And, you know, he was really completely functional. And I thought that was fascinating. And then I didn't really fully understand till the end of the book how much that depends, though, on the time it, ha- it, it happens in your life, how the plasticity yeah. is not forever in different parts of the body. Yeah, exactly right. So, uh, yeah, again, let me just give, fill in some more background here. So um, children with a really terrible type of epilepsy that essentially affects a whole half of the brain will get this surgery where half of the brain is removed. It's called a hemispherectomy. And the, the key thing, as you just said, is they come out perfectly fine. They, have, they, t- they didn't have a slight limp on the other side of their body, but otherwise they're fine. Um, the key is if an adult were to lose half of their brain, it would be disastrous. But young brains are very flexible, very malleable. And uh, the surgery is typically done before, let's say, about seven years old. And, and the child comes out perfectly fine. Um, strangely, this is done in adults, sometimes the surgery, but for example, your left hemisphere is where speech uh, is located for almost all people. And so if your left hemisphere gets removed in an adult, you, that's it. You do not have speech anymore. You are locked out uh, from the world of, of understanding and producing speech, which is one of the worst punishments uh, imaginable. Um, and so the key is plasticity, the flexibility of the brain diminishes with age. What, what I find interesting, and I explore this topic in the book, is that typically as we get older, we think, boy, I would love to have the flexibility of a young brain again so I could learn Chinese rapidly or whatever it is. But the fact is, the reason your brain becomes less flexible is because it's learning the world. It's because it's, it's actually developing an internal model of the world and it's being successful at it. And it's because of that success that things get more and more locked into place. And so you actually, let's say, you know, I invented a magical pill that said, Hey, I can restore the flexibility of a young brain. You wouldn't want to take that because you would lose all of your memories. You would lose who you Mm -hmm. are. You would lose your, your culture, your language, your identity, everything that made you um, what you are today. And you'd essentially be starting over. You wouldn't be you anymore. And I mean, I guess, you know, you aren't, you, you, the you that you are is a moving vector through time anyway, really, obviously, you know, like our sense of identity is very, seems very fixed, but it's a sort of fixed kind of um, oversight construction from something that is changing all the time. Exactly. The interesting part is, you know, we maintain the same resume through life as in, okay, well, I grew up here. My parents were named X and Y, this, blah, blah. You know, so because we have all these things that stay stable, we tend to think of ourselves as having a stable identity. But in fact, you presumably have more in common with your colleagues now than you do with your seven-year-old self. And, um, you know, I I think maybe you know this, but I also write fiction and I have a book called Sum, S-U-M, which, uh, which explores this idea a lot because I've always loved this idea about how we, f- how we feel like we're stable through time, but we're really not. And sometimes this becomes apparent if you find a, a diary entry that you wrote decades ago and you look at it and you think, my gosh, what, how, did I, how did I think this and believe that? But of course, we are always evolving towards something. And that's what brain plasticity is all about. Your brain is constantly changing. And every time you learn something, every time you experience something, there are changes in your brain. So for example, when you learn that my name is David, there is a physical change in the structures in your brain. And that's what it means to remember something. Something is physically changed. 
And that's why in a month from now you say, oh yeah, I talked with David. So your whole life, this is happening. And, um, uh, and that means that you are a slightly different person than you were at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, I love the book. I have to say it was really provocative. I mean, um, one of the topics that I thought was interesting and, but it's really a different book, but I wondered if you were thinking about it, you know, a huge part of our brains and other species brains is actually devoted to social interactions so that, you know, they're above the individual there is like the interaction of individuals in social contexts. And that wasn't really clear how that part fit in to Mm -hmm. this kind of context. Is that something that people are looking at as well? Sure. I mean, my lab studied a lot of that. And in fact, I don't know if I think you probably know this, but I have a television show called The Brain um, on PBS and it's... um, and one uh, a whole episode of that is devoted to, it's called, Do I Need You? It's all about the social brain, which is actually an enormous part of what the brain is doing. A lot of the circuitry in your brain is devoted to other people. It's devoted to the people in your life. And um, you have very rich models of people, your friends, your spouses, everybody you know, you have an internal model of them. And in fact, one of the things that I suggest in the book is that Um, This is actually what happens when somebody dies. This is what heartbreak is about, is you've got this model and you essentially expect the person to be there to fill in, you know, sort of like the negative image of, you know, it's sort of a lock and key to, to match that. And suddenly the person is not there anymore. And it's exactly equivalent. I I mean, I I flesh out this argument in the book so you can read it in more detail, but it's exactly equivalent to drug withdrawal, which is to say when, when a person takes drugs, their brain actually adapts to expect the continued presence of the drug. And when the drug is taken away, there are all these withdrawal effects. It's hard. The brain has to recalibrate itself to the absence of that. Um, so, okay, so that's one thing, but let me mention something else. I've done um, experiments uh, on the, I'll just mention one that I think is very uh, interesting and on topic here, which is um, we, we put people in the scanner and they see six hands. So they're in the brain scanner and fMRI is what it's called. They see six hands on the screen. The computer goes around and picks one of those hands. And then you see that hand gets stabbed with a syringe needle. Now it's not your hand, right? You're not in pain. Nonetheless, uh, what, what's called the pain matrix gets activated. So we can actually measure in your brain that you're feeling this pain almost as though your hand was stabbed. This is the neural basis of empathy. Now, what we do then is put a one-word label on each of these hands. So we put Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Scientologist, Hindu, atheist, and the computer goes around and you see that he stabbed with a needle. And the question is, depending on what your in-group is, do you care as much when it's a member of your out-group that gets stabbed? And what we find is that that, unfortunately, is the case. You care more about your in-group getting stabbed and less about your out-groups. And we've done a whole series of studies about this. Um, and I last year published an article in The Economist um, called, do you, uh, do you Care About Others? It Depends. Mm-hmm. And, and it's... Um, And so this is, when it comes to social neuroscience, I think this is an enormously important area. One of the things we showed without going into detail is that these um, groupings, this in-group and out-group thing is very flexible. It can switch rapidly. And so, um, you know, when I watch what's going on with social media around us, 
with people taking sides yeah. and just saying horrible things to each other. I, I, you know, I'm scared that we're living out this thing that I've been studying for 15 years about how, how rapidly people can get into the outgroups. And unfortunately, you do not care about pain or bad things happening to people in your outgroups. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I had, you know, we won't get to all of them, but I had questions about education too, because, um, you know, you talk about it some, in some ways, some of the virtues of completely self-directed education, right? Like let the brain of a particular individual, um, you know, with a basis of certain kind, go and search and find and, you know, jump through all of the chain of uh, interest rather than sort of a fixed path of learning that is based on, you know, rote learning and that the curriculum kind of evolves as your inclination and circumstances sort of drive it. But I wondered too, if the elasticity or the sort of this live wired concept of the brain could be put to, and I wondered if there was a way for the, you know, for the, for education or rehabilitation of social relationships and social thinking to be directed in a sense, you know, for, for, I mean, it's almost sounds programmatic. It's not really what I'm saying, but when, when there's almost pathologies of that kind of social in-group, out-group kind of um, hostility, yeah. whether it, it's possible yeah. to either, to, to have social programs that kind of mitigate it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I certainly think so. And what, what is interesting is it, it sort of starts in the Economist article. I gave several pieces of advice about this. And one of them is it starts with understanding and recognize these things in oneself. So that would be the first stage of a, of a class on this stuff. One of the reasons I'm glad that we have this fMRI data is because that actually gives us a way to measure the efficacy of different, let's call them intervention programs um, on this thing. Just as an example, you know, I, I knew this organization that does, uh, that cares about religious tolerance. And so they organized this thing where they have people of different religions get together for a dinner and they all get to learn about each other's things. And what I said to them is I said, I think that's awesome that you're doing that, but how do you actually know it works? How do you know that people don't leave the dinner and think, wow, that was weird. Those guys do this crazy thing and we do this other thing. And maybe it makes them more polar. You know, who knows? But, but what this gives us now is a way of measuring this, of saying, okay, look, here's three different intervention programs Let's measure before and after when your brain in this very low level, very rapid response about how much you care about another group, um, when that changes. And uh, just as one example, one of the things we also did in this experiment is we told people, I mean, imagine all we're doing is giving people a sentence. We, after, we've, after we've shown them this thing with different religions, we then say, the year is 2025. And now these three religions are teamed up against these three religions. And it's arbitrary. The computer randomizes which three. But the point is that now, whatever religion you have, you have two allies against these other three. And now, if you see one of your allies get stabbed, you care more about your ally than you did a minute ago. And so there's this thing about, okay, wait, are they on my side? Or are they not on my and, and if somebody's on your side, then you care more about them. So one of the things that um, I suggest in this Economist article that I think really is important is something that happened that actually involves Canada um, and the Northern United States, which is <clears throat> um, there were uh, Native American tribes there that were all fighting one another 
this is the Iroquois. And, um, and what happened is there were several tribes that were all fighting each other for centuries, I guess. What happened is a, a guy came in, he became the leader, he came to be known as the great peacemaker. And what he did is he essentially cross, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of cross-hatched the allegiances between tribes. So he said, so each person ended up having a tribe they belonged to and a clan that they belonged to. So you might belong to one tribe and I belong to a different tribe, but we both belong to the bear clan. And now suddenly it's not so easy to go and attack your tribe because I think, oh, well, gosh, I mean, there's a fellow bear clan member in there and I don't want to do that. And so suddenly there's all this cross stitching that holds people together in more complex ways. And I think that part is really important. And I think this is one of the key things about this moment that we're in in history right now is finding the things that people might have in common and emphasizing those and getting people to recognize those across the the social lines that they believe they have right now. Well, that's a really wonderful way to end the conversation. I've been talking to David Eagleman. He's a world-leading neuroscientist, uh, the author of Live Wired. He's written speculative fiction as well. And uh, it's been a real privilege to share some time talking about uh, the current state of neuroscience and some of the opportunities uh, for people uh, to explore the world in new ways and to have people who have disabilities uh, recuperate a lot of their uh, mobility. Fascinating book, and I hope you all enjoy it. That was Stephen Brockwell in conversation with neuroscientist David Eagleman about his new bestseller, Live Wired, the inside story of the ever-changing brain. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season and to our festival members and donors for making this possible. Our entire virtual season is available online at writersfestival.org. All you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Thank you all for listening today. Next Wednesday is Orange Shirt Day, and we hope you'll join us for a special episode featuring Giller nominee Michelle Good in conversation with Kateria Quenzidam and a look at what the Ottawa Public Library is doing to support Indigenous writers and how they are working to implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's roadmap. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director. And I'm your host, Sean Wilson. 